Well, we're in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to cover verses 11 and 12 today. And I wanted to start out with a concept. That which is impossible. We used to think that breaking the four-minute mile, having man be able to fly, breaking the speed of sound, even putting someone on the moon were all impossible things. Sure, seemed impossible. But in fact, they were not impossible. Difficult, yes. Impossible, no. I remember the first remake of the movie Mission Impossible. Yes, there was an earlier series way back in the 60s, Peter Graves. But when Tom Cruise did the reboot in, I think, 1994, he did it with John Voight. And I remember there's a portion of that movie where they're sitting around talking about the mission. And Tom Cruise's character is talking about how hard it's going to be, how challenging. And John Voight looks at him and says, that's why it's called Mission Impossible. If it was just tough, we'd call it Mission Difficult. But it's Mission Impossible. But the funny thing is, is that it is actually just Mission Difficult. No laws of physics were broken. There was no Class A miracle, and God did not have to intervene. So it really was Mission Difficult. But when God makes promises in Scripture, oftentimes they are truly mission impossible. They require a first-class miracle. They require the laws of physics to at least be bent, if not removed altogether. Things like parting of the Red Sea, raising the dead, causing the blind to see, the deaf to hear. What God promises is impossible. But then again, we serve the God of the impossible, right? Salvation is impossible were it not for the God of the impossible. And that's what we're going to look at today as this author of Hebrews, this preacher, seeks to encourage this, this church, this small house church. He's going through Old Testament characters. Remember, they want to go back to the Old Covenant. He says, well, let's talk about the Old Covenant. And so after 10 chapters of the doctrinal, he segues into the practical. And he says, let's look at Abel, and Noah, and Enoch, and Abraham. And we've spent a few weeks looking at the faith of Abraham. Today we're going to learn to trust like Abraham in the God of the impossible. Two points will guide our time. I would encourage you to take notes. Number one is God uses our faith in Him. It's a very important prepositional phrase there. God uses our faith in Him to fulfill His impossible promises. Let me say that again. God uses our faith in Him to fulfill His impossible promises. That's going to be the majority of our time. And then our second point is trust in the God of the impossible. Let's dive right in. Look at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Now, this is actually a very difficult phrase to translate from the original languages because the focus with the verbs is actually on Abraham and not on Sarah. It is Abraham who has been given the ability to procreate. And I'll explain that more in just a little bit. It literally says he received power for the disposition of seed. Remember, he was promised land, seed, and blessing. And there's a correlation here. I think the New English translation explains it best. It reads, by faith, even though Sarah, <clears throat> excuse me, Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be, tr- to be trustworthy. With regards to application, it's going to be about the faith of both of them. But the focus is on Abraham. In fact, the point of the passage is it's the faith of Abraham that God uses as the catalyst to do the impossible. And it was impossible. If you think about Abraham and Sarah, these guys were old. Both factories had been shut down for a long period of time. Not only had Sarah been barren, but she was long past menopause. They're still waiting on a child when she is 90 years old. And Abraham's 99. And apparently, from Genesis chapter 18, even the romance was long gone. So I want you to think about the physical difficulty of infertility. That's difficult. But then I want you to add to it the utter impossibility of having a child at 90. You see, you're not meant to look at this couple and think, oh, they're infertile. This is really difficult. She's never been able to have a child. That's not how this reads. You need to see this as a, as a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Okay? You know, one of these stories where like, You know, woman's hand grows back after being cut off. You see, they're not infertile. It's impossible. 90-year-old women do not get pregnant. Period. Not only do you not have the reproductive organs, you don't have a womb that could sustain a baby. It just doesn't happen. It never happens. It's going to require a class A miracle. God is going to have to divinely change things in order to produce a child. Like I said, old women don't get pregnant. pregnant. 90-year-old women never get pregnant. Guinness Book of World Records, oldest woman to naturally get pregnant. Dawn Brooke, age, want to guess? 59. There's still hope for us, right? <laughs> But we know that God not only gave an impossible promise, but He gave them the the divine ability to believe. And this is the interesting part about how all this fits together. God gives these amazing, impossible promises, expects His people to believe, but then He's gracious enough to give them the faith to believe, and He uses that as the catalyst to enact or enable his promise. And God gets all the glory. Isn't that amazing? 
You ever thought about that in your life? How God puts you in situations to trust? Or He puts you in situations where you should be worried, and yet He then gives you the divine peace or the divine faith to endure? We know that faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a what? Come on, we know this verse. It is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. We also know Romans 4, where it talks about Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as what? Righteousness. Okay? So we get that. I mean, Abraham didn't come from Ur with his little, you know, box of faith that he was going to give God. No, God gave it to him. The interesting thing here is that how this is going to work out in his life over a period of 25 years with an impossible promise that he does not see, and yet he becomes assured of because of the faith that God gives him. Are you with me? Abraham believed God and it was credit to him or reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, we know that quote. We may not know where it comes from, though. So take your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 15, and let's look at it together. Now, just a quick recap. We know we see Abraham come on the scene. Genesis 12, God calls him out of Ur the Chaldees. Pagan worship. Ur was known for the, uh, the hub, the temple worship of the moon god Nana. God calls him out of there, grants him the ability to believe, promises him land, seed, and blessing in chapter 12. And then in chapter 15, he again reiterates the promise of seed, talks about making him a great nation with the cutting of a covenant. And remember, he puts Abraham to sleep and then moves between the pieces of the slaughtered animal. Well, look at chapter 15, verse 1 with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And my heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Translation, since I have heard this promise three times before, what's changed? When's it going to happen? Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Did it ever occur to us that that phrase comes from the event in which God makes this impossible promise 
and then graciously grants him the gift of faith to believe in the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things, what? Not seen. I don't know that I've realized that before or I've forgotten it from preaching the book of Romans. It comes from this doubt here. And yet God gives the gift of faith. Since you have given no offspring to me, changes into, then he believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. God chooses to give not only the impossible promise, but the divine gift of faith as the instrument in enabling his weak creation to believe in the impossible by believing in the God of the impossible and the God of the impossible gets all the glory. And they considered him faithful. That's, that's what their faith was. It's clear from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. They believed because they considered him faithful. You ever think about that? That's, that's what makes our faith real. That's what makes our faith effective. Not that we just believe something is going to happen or we believe it's all going to be okay, but that we believe in the object of our faith. We consider God faithful. How is God faithful? God who cannot lie. God is honest. So if God says something, it's going to happen. It's done. It's as good as done. And he believed. And we could just end there, and it would be nice. And we'd look at Abraham and we'd say, wow, I gotta be more like Abraham, right? And, and there's something to that. But I, I think it also helps to provide a little bit of color that Abraham's faith wasn't always super strong, right? He had some hits and misses, right? His faith faltered a little bit along the way, like the rest of us. That doesn't give us an excuse, but it shows us how there was ups and downs and it became stronger. Turn over a page to chapter 16. Let's look at some of these hits and misses. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing. That's pretty strong, isn't it? It's God's fault. You know, it's kind of like the way Adam said, The woman you gave me. God has prevented me. Okay, we'll see how that goes. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Yeah, that, that was a mistake there. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And from that union we have who? Ishmael, right? Who was a wild donkey of a man and created a lot of problems. So there was some faltering of his faith. Fast forward another 14 years 
24 years since the promise in Genesis chapter 12. Turn over one more page to Genesis chapter 17. Verse 1, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. And I have made you exceedingly fruitful, past tense, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Abram. Ab means father, like Abba. Ram means exalted. Abram means exalted father. Kind of a tough name for a guy who doesn't have any kiddos, right? It gets worse. Abraham is a play on words. It sounds like Abhamon. Abhamon means father of a crowd. <laughs> Abraham's like, really, Lord? You know, I've been stuck with this name. It's kind of like a boy named Sue, you know, forever. And now you're going to make it worse on me? You think about what that's like. You know, Abraham's out in the field. He's working. Someone's trying to get his attention. Father of a crowd, come this way. Every time he hears his name, it sounds like father of a crowd. It's tough. Unless you really believe in the God of the impossible. Unless you really believe it. I mean, think about that. Like if God told me you're going to be a great basketball star one day. Seriously? Have you seen me play? Yes. So I'm going to change your name to LeBron James. That's tough. Nice to meet you, LeBron James. Really? 5'9 and slow. This is good. And his faith swings and misses. Look at verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Hey, Sarah didn't fare much better. Turn one page over to chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Remember that was that shrine we taught, that Canaanite worship center, while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes, he looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. So let me describe this scene. It's early afternoon. Abraham's massive workforce has taken lunch. They've already put in about five hours, and camp falls silent. People take a a Semitic siesta. Abraham's sitting in front there in his rocking chair, dozing off, and there's kind of a Bedouin doorbell, as one commentator said. Three men are standing before him. He runs out, bows down. He realizes that these are not ordinary visitors and seems to sense that one of them is God. 
He gets on his knees and he says, do me the honor of letting me serve you. Verse 4, please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself. After that, you may go on. But since you have visited your servant. And they said, yes, do so. Now, why is he so eager? Remember, he's got it on his calendar. If you know Genesis chapter 17, you know that God said this time next season you will bear a child. So it's been 25, 24 years, I guess. Promised, promised, promised. Now the promise has specificity. He sees these men coming. He knows they're not here to do pagan worship. He calls one of them Adonai, which is the reference word for God. He's like, maybe they're here. Maybe it's time. The promise is here. Please stay. Let me, let me fix you something. He goes into the kitchen. He barks out orders. He takes what was supposed to be a little snack. He lays out a banquet. And he's anxious to hear from them. But they're the ones that ask the question. Look at verse 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now, I think that's interesting because it's like, does God not know where Sarah is? And he says, there in the tent. <laughs> you know, I could just imagine her. What's going on? Verse 10, he said, surely I will return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Verse 12, Sarah, what does it say? Laughed to herself. Saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? Why did she laugh? Because the promise is impossible. And her faith was faltering. Look at verse 14. I love this line. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And then he repeats it. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That word difficult is the same word for wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for God? Jeremiah relates this in talking about the, the exodus of the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites were the first readers of Genesis. They're sitting around Mount Sinai. They're listening to this being read. Jeremiah relates how wonderful, how difficult all the miracles were that took place for the Exodus. He says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt and with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror, and gave them this land, which you swore to their forefathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Is anything too difficult for our Lord? Is anything too wonderful for our Lord? And do you know what Isaiah says? For a child will be born to us, 
A son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. If you're a Jew reading the book of Hebrews and you're thinking about quitting, you're a Jewish Christian. You're thinking about going back to the Old Covenant, back to the synagogue, moving back to the Jewish quarter. You get this. This preacher, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is backing up the Jewish dump truck and saying, you want to go back? Let me tell you that the New Covenant is the very fulfillment of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jesus Christ. Don't go back. Drifting has a destination. Have faith like Abraham. But Abraham had weak faith sometimes. Yeah, sometimes he did. But he stayed the course. He did not go back to Ur. He didn't quit. And he believed and it was reckoned to him as Righteousness. Let me ask us a question. Can God's word be trusted? I know the answer is, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Can his word be trusted in our lives today? Is anything too difficult? Are our circumstances more difficult than what Abraham had and Sarah? I like what Kent Hughes says, talking about Abraham. says he weighed the impossibility of becoming a father against the divine impossibility of God being able to break his word and decided that since God is God, nothing is impossible. Amen? Well, look at our second point. Trust the God of the impossible. You can stay where you're at. I'm going to go ahead and read to you verse 12 of chapter 11 in Hebrews. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Again, the first readers of this Old Testament quote, okay, were sitting around Sinai. Look at the stars. Look at the sand. There's two million Israelites. I mean, do you see the irony? Two million Israelites, descendant of Abraham. Abraham believed in what he could not see because he served the God of the impossible. The first audience reading Genesis needs to believe in what they cannot see, a promised land, because of the, they serve the God of the impossible. The Hebrew church needs to believe that God will persevere through them and carry them to the end, though they cannot see, because they serve the God of the impossible. You at Metro Bible Church need to believe in what you cannot see because we serve the God of the impossible. Turn with me to the New Testament. A lot of text today. 
Romans chapter 4, and I want us to analyze this faith. If we're called to trust the God of the impossible, what is this kind of faith? How does it apply to us today? What, what kind of promises do we need to trust? Romans chapter 4. It's going to describe the faith of Abraham. Look at verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Okay? Us Gentile converts. Verse 17. As it is written, a father of many nations I have made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now here's the key, verse 18. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken. God's word. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Okay, pause there real quickly. Abraham has faith. He believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Sometimes he had a weak faith, but he still had faith. He had a weak faith. He did not go back to Ur. He did not quit. He reminds me of the guy that says, I believe. Help my unbelief, right? Do we identify with that? Amen. Amen. But his faith grew strong because he kept putting one foot in front of another. What did we learn last week? He was a sojourner. He didn't quit. And his faith grew strong. Verse 21 being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Now look at verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. The key here is that the God of the impossible grants faith to believe in the God of the impossible, and he strengthens that faith over time, usually through adversity. Johnny Erickson Tata said, God loves my faith too much to leave it in a weak estate. That's a woman with faith. Now, can I show you the ripple effects of Abraham's faithfulness, for which God gets all the credit, and how his descendants emulated Abraham, and how these descendants in the first century, Rome probably, these Hebrew Christians are supposed to emulate him, and how we're supposed to emulate him. All right? Give me five minutes. We're going to just race through this. Remember, the original audience, Israelites in the wilderness around Sinai. You don't need to turn there, but remember what happened. They get through the Red Sea. Moses goes up on the mountain. He's getting the tablets, right? They're being printed, carved, whatever. And the people start to not believe. 
They decide to quit believing in the God they cannot see and say, make us a God we can see that can't do anything, right? So they grab Aaron, give them their earrings. Exodus 32, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, Moses is not stupid. He's with God. God knows what's going on. God gets angry. He says, I'm done. I've seen these people, and behold, they're an obstinate people. I think it was the King James that said they were a stiff-necked and disobedient people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you, meaning Moses, a great nation. And ready to start over. And I like this. They're an obstinate, disobedient, ungrateful people. I'm done. Get out of my way. Let me destroy them. I'll just continue the promise with you. Listen to how Moses responds. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. And all this land to which I have spoken, I will give your descendants, and they will inherit it forever. Listen to that again. Remember Abraham, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself, and you said to them. Basically what Moses is doing is talking to his father and saying, but you said, dads, we know how that goes, right? <laughs> but you said... And he goes a step further, further and he says, you swore to God. That's what he's saying. You swore by yourself. You swore to God. You said you swore to God and you cannot lie. Keep your promise to Abram. Now we look at that and we're like, what's going on? Is God changing his mind? No, God's not changing his mind. God is choosing to enter into man's world and be emotionally affected by the situation, but he's not changing his will, okay? Another sermon, another seminary class for another day. But the point is this. God is giving Moses faith to respond and remind him of the promise because he's talking to and trusting in the God of the promise. You said, and he's grabbing hold of his robe, you promised and you cannot lie. I don't know what else is going on. I don't know how impossible it is, but it is you that I trust your word. This is Moses, like 700 years later, believing in the promise. God used the faith he gave Moses to respond in trust to the impossible promises made by the God of the impossible who always does what he said he would do. Amen? All right, so let's, let's bring the practical to bear here. What are these impossible promises that this Hebrew church thinks are too difficult? I, I just chose a few here. I'm thinking, what do they have at the time? And you tell me if we don't resonate with this. They're going through persecution, ridicule, their reputation's being destroyed, they've lost property, John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promises to come back. Matthew 28, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. 
John 10, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of the palm of my hand. Matthew 6, Do not worry then, saying, What we will eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 10, 19, When they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you will say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. Philippians 4, 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4, 8, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Are any of those promises too difficult for this Hebrew church? You see, in the midst of it, what they were doubting was not really the promises of God. They were really doubting God. You see, God is either unable to do what He said He would do, or He's unwilling to do what He said He was going to do. Both impugn the character of God. He's either not powerful enough, or He's not good. He's not honest. He's a liar. The solution to their persecution is not to blindly believe in a promise, but to faithfully believe in the God who made the impossible promise. Because with God, all things are possible. And with God, His Word is always infallible. Let me show you how this ends. Genesis 21. Then, it's hard for me to say because I get choked up. Then the Lord took note of Sarah. I could preach an entire sermon on that right there. Your version may say the Lord remembered Sarah. Anytime you see that, especially in the Old Testament, it, it, it's usually with God showing his affection to the barren. He didn't forget, but it's when he acts. Then the Lord took note of Sarah, and he said, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, 25 years after the promise. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you know what Isaac means? He laughs. He laughs. Talk about a reminder every time she called him for dinner. Isaac, 
He laughs, come for dinner. Every time one of the kids called his name, she's reminded of the promise and the God of the impossible. This passage is meant to drive home, as one commentator said, the utter reliability of God. Now, you think this might make a difference for this first century church? that's feeling alone, rejected by both the family, friends, the world, disillusioned, as it has cost them in so many areas, the preacher reminds them of God's utter reliability. He is the God of the impossible. 